Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Well, you know, the the thing is that you have also had a major role in spreading the truth and spreading the word. And I think that's what we really have to do. Things that you are doing by writing novels by writing books, because you have that firsthand experience. You understand why you have to do what you've done. And you look at the books you've written, they may be fiction, but I know that you put in those books the truth so that by reading the fiction and enjoying the fiction, you're also getting the information you need to make informed decisions about what is going wrong in the world today and what we need to do to fix it. You know, uh, thank you for those comments. I do a talk, and I've, I've given this talk uh, to writers' conferences before and other in other venues, some school conferences. It's entitled "Fiction as a Weapon in the Culture War," and and I was one of these nonfiction snobs for many years. You know, I was fiction. I'm not going to touch it. But but I've come to the conclusion, as I said a moment ago, in quoting the Romans, "Give them bread and give them circus." Today, the bread is a welfare state, and the circus is the garbage Hollywood is putting out. But it, it's amazing how powerful story can be. Uh, to influence the culture, both for good and evil. And in the talk that I give, I basically cite two or three novels that have uh, that works of fiction that have shaken the culture. I typically will cite Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which, next to the Bible itself, was the largest seller of any book in the 19th century in the world. Lincoln was, re- was uh, rumored to have said to Harriet Beecher Stowe when he met her in November of 1862, that it's good to finally meet the little lady that started this big war. You know, Lincoln used uh, abolition as uh, you know as a rallying point midway through the war, although he was not an abolitionist to begin with. But but that, that book, the point of the matter is being a work of fiction, had a tremendous impact. Then I also cite the works of Solzhenitsyn. That's a little more contemporary to most of us. Unfortunately, many Americans don't know who he is. He wrote the novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Fifty years later, the BBC called it the novel that shook the Soviet Union. But that novel, when it was released for a very brief period of time, you know, Solzhenitsyn was going after Stalin. Stalin and, and Khrushchev basically hated each other, even though they were both communists. When Khrushchev became general secretary, he knew about this book, let it out, got in the Soviet Union, and lit the country on fire. And so the point is that fiction can, and story, can affect the culture. And we don't realize we... We wonder why the country is the way it is. Why is the country voting a certain way? Why all of a sudden have has our culture taken on this, 
what it's taken on. Well, you go back 50 years and you see the storylines that have been bombarded into the into the culture through sources of fiction, through Hollywood, whether it's television, whether it's the big screen, whether it's novel, etc., uh, and the way of thinking changes. So this is one of the things that was driving me. Um, I, I learned uh, quite some time ago, I can learn more about the, Gatt- the Battle of Gettysburg by reading Killer Angels, a great work of historical fiction, than I can reading a, uh, you know, a straight-up historical treatise. So that's one of the things that drives me in terms of trying to use fiction as a way to influence the culture and also to warn, because I think, you know, when you have good story, you can remember things better. You can interweave truth and story. Fiction versus nonfiction is not truth versus versus falsity by any means. But so that's sort of the philosophy that drives me in writing. Well, that's a great philosophy because you have cited some of the mo- one of the most important principles that we are suffering from is that over the course of the past hundred years, the progressive era in this country, the people of the country have been fed lies cloaked in sheep's clothing. Uh, We've been fed lies that have been guised as the truth or guised as good, and that has been done largely through the media. The more the media has been able to have access to people, first, of course, it was in the movies, but then now with the computer and the Internet, there's almost an unlimited way that, that young people especially are, can be co-opted into believing things that just, frankly, are not even true. That's absolutely correct. And if, you know, they say if you, who was it that said if you, if you tell a lie enough times, it will begin to be, sink in as the truth. And uh, unfortunately, that's where we are. Yes. And we're in the situation where the prophet said, woe to them who call evil good and good evil. And now the cult, in the culture and in the, in the political apparatus, in the media, uh, you know, we have, we're, blat- we're blatant in a situation where we're calling evil good and good evil. And, you know, and I'm, I'm a military guy, of course, and I, and I see it in the military, and my passion, of course, is, is for guys that have lost their lives, just like these 30 Americans, as you mentioned, who, by the way, passed away four years ago yesterday, or August 6th, 2011. Um, and their their lives have been largely forgotten, and but they are the victims of political correctness, not just political correctness, but an Islamocentric political correctness, whereby the rules of engagement were set that guaranteed their death. And uh, again, what are those who call good, e- good evil and evil good, and that's where we are. You know, you mentioned a couple of novels, Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and Solzhenitsyn's work. Right. The one for me that I think is most important in this era is George Orwell's 1984. Right got an excellent point. And as they say, in eastern North Carolina, where I grew up, who would have thunk it? You know? And uh, and that, when that novel was released, it was considered to be so far out left field, who would have thunk it? You know? But now, um, it has become amaz- amazingly prophetic, and, uh, and unfortunately, Orwell had the ability to see and to understand what can happen with un- when unbridled power and unbridled ambition is merged with advanced technology, and that's exactly where we are. Well, no question about it. I mean, what I say about George Orwell is he predicted the future. He was just a few years off. Sure. Uh, and that's really what it wasn't in 1984. We didn't quite have the technology, right. but now we do. Everything that he predicted in his book, we now have the technology to do and are doing. Just look at, you know, the spying on Americans, uh, you know, that television set in 1984 where you had to do your exercises in the morning and it would look at you and make sure you were there. Right. You know, that's not that far off. It probably is there to a certain degree uh, right. all over the place right now. Look at all the television cameras, the red light cameras, uh, right. whatever, the satellites. I was amazed to look at 
uh, Google Earth and see what you can see and what detail you can see uh, the ground. You can look at your own your own place. I mean, I was I looked at my place on Google Earth. I could see I could see my round pen where I use my horses. I could see my a truck in the in the front of my barn, and you could almost identify. And this is Google Earth, not what the military has. I mean, you could almost identify the the, the make of the truck and, and the color. So spying on us from the sky, uh, on the phone lines, on the internet, that's a fact of life that is definitely, absolutely, one hundred percent against the Fourth Amendment. It is, and um, and uh, I am in the process right now of editing a novel that's going back to Zondervan. My Principal publishers throughout the years have been Donovan. Now they've been bought out by HarperCollins. So um, HarperCollins now signs the check, but it's a, it's, a, it's a book about a contract for 100,000 drones, which will be shared between the Department of Navy and, and Homeland Security. It's touching on a number of these Fourth Amendment issues that you discussed. For example, most people don't realize there is statutorily a 100-mile, quote-unquote, constitution-free zone established by federal statute under which Border agents don't need a warrant to search, and a lot of folks don't realize that. But uh, one of the things that I'm hoping to do, and, and it's in the book, is to actually cite the statute so that anyone reading the book can learn about it. But it's amazing how much we don't know. It's amazing how much gets slipped in uh, by the governmental apparatus, whereby the federal government basically has now turned into something um, that the Constitution does not envision, and and it's become, as some would say, a lollipop factory. But... Uh, at any rate, uh, I think we, I think it's appropriate to use forms of fiction and other forms to educate. When I write fiction, I, first I've got to entertain, of course. If I don't entertain and if I don't put tension in, into my story, people are going to put the book down. But then I also want to educate. I also want to write uh, uh, for a sublime purpose. But I'm hoping to educate through some of these novels. And that's when you mentioned the spying and, and Fourth Amendment issues, um, I try to incorporate those types of things into my novels in a geocontemporary setting. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum will return right after this break. Well, that's obviously very important. The thing is, is that when you are addressing young people today who are so dependent on those electronic devices taking them away in the sense of having them be aware of the risks of these devices is, is like taking away something that is essential for their lives. But what they don't realize is that every single thing they write, say, every picture they take, everything that is on the internet is there forever. It never, ever, ever goes away. And when you tell that to young people, they look at you kind of quizzically like, why are you bothering to tell me this? They just don't get it. They don't understand how risky it is for all this stuff to be available for anyone who wants to find it. That, that's correct. And they, <clears throat> to, me, to them, it's totally natural. And yet, and yet they are totally exposing themselves for everything and all details about their lives um, to be an open book and to be, and it's a dangerous thing. It is just a dangerous thing. And we need to wake up to the danger. Well, it's not only dangerous, but from that way, you are able, the government and others are able to feed false information to massive amounts of people through Facebook and, and whatever other means. And so the reality is no longer rea real. The reality is what they see uh, electronically and digitally. 
Uh, that is really a huge issue for me, and I know for you as well. And your books of fiction, Don Brown, are one of the ways, if we can get people to read those books, that is one of the ways that you can interject into people's lives the reality of what's going on. Otherwise, they won't believe it. Thank you, um, Dr. Dan. I, you know, there are 10 novels out, and every one of them are written. I have, there's one historical fiction out of the 10, but they're, they're all, all the others are what we call geocontemporary thrillers. So if you pick up one of my novels, I'm hoping that you're going to be educated about germane issues that are affecting the world today. For example, in 2012, we released a, a novel through, through Zondervan HarperCollins called Fire the Raging Dragon. is a novel that takes place in the South China Sea, released in 2012 under which China makes a claim to the contested Sprat- Spratly Islands, and it deals with the issue of China's growing naval presence. China purchased a, an aircraft carrier from Ukraine. Um, you, you know, at the bust-up of the Soviet Union, some of those carriers were left in Ukraine. China purchased one and has refurbished it and now put it to sea. That is dealt with in this novel. The contested claims in the Spratly Islands are dealt with in the novel. The tension between China, Taiwan, and other nations in the area are dealt with in the novel. The tremendous explosion of debt that we have to China is dealt with in the novel. How will we deal with this if it blows up? And China's one-world policy, which is involved—excuse me, their one-child policy, which is involved massive infanticide—is dealt with in the novel. So if you pick the novel up, you're going to read about all those. You're actually going to see maps of the region, and so hopefully. Um, Hopefully, you'll be able to understand some of the geopolitical issues that are going on. I have another novel, Malacca Conspiracy, which takes place in the Malacca Straits region. It was released uh, the year before in 2000. Excuse me, Malacca was released in 2010, and uh, and and people have picked that up. And when this Malaysian airliner went down, they were blown away because they're seeing maps of the region where the airliner went down. So I'm trying to write in ways that folks can pick things up and understand what's going on in the world around in a way that's entertaining and and you can learn from it and remember it and be able to address the issues. And also I'm writing, hopefully, from a biblical worldview perspective as well so that, that the spin is the right spin, I'm hoping. I think that's really important. And these novels, to me, uh, like we have talked about already, they are really critical for getting facts facts out because in an enjoyable way you get to enjoy the story but you're also learning things facts that you need to know in order to make important decisions now you know uh, one of the things we're always dealing with government and when it involves almost anything is when something happens people don't like or when the government doesn't like what you get is spin and you get cover-up and that's unfortunately a fact of life it's been a fact of life for a long time but it seems to me it's getting an awful lot worse as the government does so many things that are unconstitutional immoral uh it's just now become almost everything that happens when you look and see what the government has said is saying what they're putting out the first thing you do is not believe it you look at benghazi i mean that was that's a classic, and, and it's classic in many ways. What, what do you, as a former military person, what do you think about Benghazi? Benghazi is um, a cover-up which involves a big problem with rules of engagement again because of the stand-down order. There are all kinds of ideas as to what, you know, why Chris Stevens was in the, was in the, um, the consulate, but the issue to me is the stand-down order. Uh, we had military assets in the area at Aviano Air Base in Italy, right across the Med. We could have gotten military assets there and saved American lives, but did not. 
Now, of course, it's very clear that the whole it was a it was a uh, it was a, a film. Mem was a, an absolute lie from the pit of hell from the beginning um, to protect uh, Islam. No question about that, and that's been proven. And so that, that's not even debatable. My my, uh, my concern is when you have Africom uh, wanting to go in, uh, Africa Command wanting to go in and, and provide military assistance and not doing it. Benghazi is there's a common thread between Benghazi and Fort Hood and Chattanooga, which just happened a moment, you know, a few weeks ago, and Extortion 17, which happened four years ago this week, and that we. The rules of engagement currently being set by this administration do not allow the military to protect itself or to protect civilian assets, and the, and uh, it, it's designed not to offend Islam. You know, um, you you fire first. You know, the think the thinking as well. You know, you're considered to be colonialist and oppressive, uh, but yet Americans are getting killed and Americans died unnecessarily at. Benghazi, just like at Fort Hood, just like at Chattanooga, and just like in Distortion 17, because of foolish decision-making made up the chain of command. And that's what really infuriates me about Benghazi, as yeah. much as the it was a film a video lie. You know, if you want to lie about it, say it's a video, I mean, you're going to lie. We know the government's lying. You, you know, you know the federal, the executive branch of the federal government is lying when its lips are moving. But at least protect you're going to lie, lie, that's reprehensible, but at least protect Americans on the ground with the correct rules of engagement to allow us to protect American blood and American lives. And that's not happening. You know, that's what strikes me as so idiotic about the, the policy of not allowing servicemen to be armed. I mean, here is a group of people, men and women, the most highly trained group of people on earth, trained in the use of weaponry. Why would they not be allowed, why would they in any way not be considered safe to have weapons on base or anywhere else they are? These are people who are trained in the use of weapons. That's what their training is. And to have them there sit like sitting ducks, of course, it's that whole philosophy of gun-free zones. I mean, the well, stupidity. Well, you know what happens with gun-free zones, of course, gun, yeah, gun-free zones, right. Right, it's stupid. Gun-free zones only causes more murders with guns. Um, from the folks who are not going to not going to obey the unconstitutional edict of a gun-free zone to begin with, but uh, you know this was started in the Clinton administration. Um, up until that time, recruiters have been keeping you know weapons, and uh, so it's a combination of political correctness by being anti-gun here domestically, and then now um, with uh, Islamic extremists here infiltrating the United States and putting a fatwa, putting um, already saying that U.S. US military, the military are going to be targets, and you still don't give the military the ability to, to defend itself, it's suicidal. It's criminal, if you ask me. At least give sidearms to officers. Just start there, you know. Uh, and then don't, in this case, in, in Chattanooga, the Navy, and this is driven from the top down, and, and by the way, I, I just want you to know, Dr. Dan, and I want your your, your listeners to know, as a former naval officer, you know, I left as lieutenant commander in 04. I have great confidence in the U.S. military. I do not have confidence in the leadership of the U.S. military, okay? And there's a difference. But, uh, but at least give your officers the opportunity to defend it, their men 
and women. And in this case, the Navy was getting ready to actually prosecute one lieutenant commander there in, in Chattanooga who pulled his 9mm out and started to defend his men. And they were getting ready to prosecute him. Colonel Allen West exposed that, and thank the Lord, it looks like they're back down based upon pressure now. But that shows the mentality that we're dealing with. Tell me why, after Fort Hood and now after Chattanooga, we still aren't arming our men and women in uniform here in the United States. Give me one good reason. It's absolutely infuriating. It's almost like somebody wants these folks to get killed because the attacks are going to continue as this radical Islam grows unchecked with the immigration policy that we have and the Islamocentrism evidenced by this administration is going to get worse. And yet still, our men and women in uniform domestically cannot protect themselves. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything going to be all right this morning.